This is the one with a Mongoose 5 processor. No unsightly bulge in Doc's pocket. And the return of the spiders. Don't call us that! Leon, there's something on your back. <laughs> it's called The Eight Truths. And it's called World Wide Web. Here we go! Reviewing audiobooks now too, cause we love our Doctor Who. Encountering we're in time of dark, Daleks FaceTime Anglam Rock. Starlet films are awful, that's the TARDIS way. Where a punk in a Mary's K. That's Kane with a K. Who back when? Reviewing all the poo there is. Who back when? Subscribe and rate on iTunes please. Audiobook by audiobook, even those are gobbledygook. We'll, we'll review, review them, them all you see, so join us on this odyssey. It's who back when? Who back when? What ho, ladies and gentlemen of Podcast Land, and welcome to episode A020 of Who Back When, a Doctor Who podcast. Hell hath frozen over. Here we are back for another audio review. Or Docpast. <sighs> Today we will be reviewing two episodes, but before we get into all that... I am so privileged to be joined in the Who Back When studio today by none other than Drew Back When himself. Hello, Drew. Hello. I'm back from the nearly dead. You are. You've been uh, feeling rather poorly recently. Yes. But your voice has acquired a sexy timbre. It's lost nine-tenths of that sexy timbre. (laughs) (laughs) I was kept in quarantine for the sake of all the women of Whitney who would otherwise... (laughs) You know, have, have sacrificed their own immune systems just to throw themselves at my contagious throat. Yeah, just to get a bit more of that sweet rumble. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, man? I'm Grace. I am Leon. Hello, podcast land. Yay. <laughs> Got there in the end. So we're going to be reviewing two episodes today. They go together. We had a quick chat before pressing record whether to even consider these two separate episodes because one would make no sense without the other. I'm talking, of course, about The Eight Truths and World Wide Web. Yeah. And you say one wouldn't make sense without the other, but you are right in that... (laughs) But I'm right. In that they were released separately in separate halves by Big Finish in 2009. First of all, it was on the website. Eight Truths was released in May, World Wide Web in June. And then on CD, they came out again in consecutive months in September and October. So you get to the end of Eight Truths, and that is a genuine cliffhanger for a month. And what a cliffhanger. Bing bong, future Drew back when here, here to describe the cliffhanger, because we don't actually come back to describe it. At the very end of The Eight Truths, spoiler alert, the eight legs are revealed as the antagonists behind the cult about to take over the world. Bing bong. Okay, I feel bad for those who just judge episodes by their covers, because if you go online and just want to download one of these particular books, and you just look at the covers, they have entirely separate covers, and the second one looks, I'm going to say, maybe a little bit more exciting than the first one. Hmm. I wonder if people didn't read the reviews, didn't want to have anything spoiled, and just went, I'm going to listen to that spider one, and they download that, and then nothing makes sense to these people. (laughs) Ah, oh, but then, then they have to shell out for the other half. Oh, that is true. That is true. Oh, they're devious, aren't they? Okay, well, we'll get into that. Let's start off with a bite-sized chunk of who first. What do you say, Drew? Let's. Time for us to synopsize, lobify and summarize. So take a view and grab a brief and listen to this overview, this free-for-all. We like to call a bite-sized chunk of who. In this two-parter, Britain is making its latest amateurish attempt at staking a claim on outer space after the failure of Beagle 2, when not one, but two space probes heading for Mercury go AWOL. On Earth's surface, meanwhile, hippie cult The Eightfold Truth is spreading across the nation with its mesmerising message and sinister blue crystals. 
Lucy Miller wakes up to find the Eighth Doctor already involved in the first thing, so she gets embroiled in the second one. Have we encountered the Blue Crystals before? Is there perchance some malevolent eight-legged alien force running the show? Well, yes. Be scout over, you are welcome. Aren't you? Just. No. (laughs) I've got to pace myself. I might not get to the end of this. Oh, yeah. Right, is there any particular place you want to start? Well, I want to start with Stephen Moore. Oh, let's hear it then. Because we've already encountered Stephen Moore on Who Back When. Oh, oh really? In what did he appear? He appeared in Cold Blood. Oh, did he now? As Eldane. Oh. Is it coming back to you now? Oh, I think so. This is the guy who played Marvin the Paranoid Android. <gasps> no way. And also in this episode, Clark Goodman, leader of the hippie cult, the Eightfold Truth. Huh. Okay. All right. Listen to that two hours back again. It'll suddenly click. What's his name again? Stephen Moore. It's a deceptively ordinary sounding name for sci-fi royalty. I've just looked him up. Oh, no, I I absolutely recognize him. Oh, my goodness. I didn't realize I had not looked at the cast list for this audiobook, and I didn't realize this is who I was listening to. Imagine him saying, Restack, (laughs) over and over again. Any other movie connections or episode connections? Well, we covered that in Cold Blood, so you you want to listen to that podcast. I guess so, We're not going to repeat ourselves. I have a movie connection. Well, go on then. Just a bit of fun trivia. We open part one of this double feature, The Eight Truths, on the 21st of October 2015. Then the future, also the future, and Back to the Future 2, which is the date that they travel to in Back to the Future 2. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Abby and I have been watching Scrubs all week because we're ill. And in that, Dr. Cox talks about his then-infant son and how he will grow up to appear in the 2016 Olympics, which have already gone by. Yep. And that kid's now an adult. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But, yeah, yeah. So the near future already become the near past for this one. Yeah, that's true. So you better buy it now. Sorry, complete tangent, but you had never encountered some of the characters that we meet in this one. Well, no, actually, you need to start this because I haven't encountered the eight legs. Nor have you encountered the headhunter or Karen. No, no, I haven't. So the eight legs, by the time we're recording this, our review of the Planet of the Spiders, which is the first Doctor Who serial in which the eight legs appear, has not dropped yet. We are currently two days from the drop date of that review. (laughs) So you may already have listened to that classic review now, ladies and gents. But so for context, the eight legs were a spider race. They were effectively regular spiders that had been mutated by the powers of these blue crystals on the planet Metabilis 3 to, first off, grow in size, secondly, develop intellectually, thirdly, develop certain extrasensory perceptions, certain certain telepathic, telekinetic, and otherwise just bombastically paranormal to us mere mortal abilities. They were able to traverse the astral plane, as it's clarified in this audiobook. I should say the scientific background that is given to the spiders, sorry, not spiders, the eight legs, they hate being called spiders. That's just racist to them. But the scientific background that is given to them in this audiobook double feature is way more profound than anything we learn about them in The Planet of the Spiders. Oh, is that right? So in this one, for example, they say the whole, the doctor just casually drops just the phrase, oh, they're able to travel across the astral plane. Whereas in The Planet of the Spiders, they just, they're teleporting across space and time with absolutely no explanation whatsoever. Oh, right. that sounds like that makes them unbeatable. <laughs> you would think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they... they well, apart from those plucky stone wielders. 
they managed to hone in on some um, chaps in a Buddhist monastery who are meditating because they're so focused, their thought is so focused. They're able to hone in on their thoughts and teleport from 200 years in the future on Metabilis 3 across the galaxy to Earth in 1974. Wow. Yeah. That's an enormous compliment yeah. to those and, monks. Good and monking, we, guys. And thanks to Paul McGann, we finally get the explanation for it. Yeah, or at least we get a line yeah. around which we can... Let's have a fist... Uh, an explanation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. That sort of, in passing, brings up a question I was going to ask, uh-huh. which is that... Who else is on Metabilis 3, apart from these spiders? So they were the eight legs. Yeah. There were also the two legs. Right. And the two legs were humans. So this is the backstory of the eight legs. Human colonists from Earth, that is, 200 years in the future, go into space. And they go to the planet Metabilis 3. They land. They've got these spaceships. They land on the surface. Something happens with the spaceships. They're damaged in some way, so they can never leave. They're now stuck on this planet. Now, they did not do a very good job of cleaning the spaceship before they left Earth. So there were some spiders stuck in the crevices. And those spiders crawl out of the spaceship, find these blue crystals, mutate. Okay, okay. That then takes care of where my question was leading, which was, why do the spiders, the eight legs, take such an exception to being called spiders when I imagined wrongly that people just rocked up and in their own language started calling them this thing? And they're like, how, how dare you? We have, we have centuries of grievance built up against this thing you started calling us yesterday. <laughs> yeah, well, now you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah they've, they've been <laughs> millions of years of sidelining and enmity with the human race. I get that now. However, you bring up a really good point. We have no reference to the two legs in this audiobook double feature. No. And as far as I'm aware, there are still two legs around at the end of Planet of the Spiders. Spoiler alert. But they're just humans. Yeah. But what happened to them? <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. I don't care because I didn't see the episode. But they never <laughs> call anyone here two legs. No, that's true. That's true. They could have done that. I don't like that. But maybe there's a distinction made on the part of the Metabilis spiders, on the part of the eight legs, between Metabilis humans and Earth humans. Uh, what distinction can there be? Oh, so you're saying to them we all look the same? Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> We don't, because they make distinctions between individual humans in this audiobook, even. When Karen gets taken over, mm. and we need to talk about Karen and the Headhunter as well, but when yeah, Karen yeah. gets taken over, the spider who takes her over goes, like, oh, I didn't realize I would look like this. And they were like, no, no, she's, she's short, but she's cute or good looking or whatever it is the, the other spider says. For no reason whatsoever, I have a list of good lines that I liked. And in this, I have written, in this era of Earth history, it's considered very attractive to be short. That really appealed to me. And to me. Yeah. (laughs) In case you didn't know Podcast Land, this uh, episode brought to you by two relatively short guys. (laughs) Yeah. Which is why we're not out playing basketball. We're indoors on a Friday night. Yeah. Reviewing Doctor Who. Indoors with loads of room (laughs) over our heads. Like, not even close room yeah because <laughs> we're so short <laughs> yes oh it makes sense <laughs> like i said something relevant sorry pertinent right and nick and rory if they were still here they'd be short too <laughs> they would be but not jd no because he's tall that's why he's trying to become an actor i know he'll probably succeed as well you and i would never stand a chance no. as actors unless we could be the talking short people every yeah. now that we could be playing the roles of established actors who are being taken over by spiders in these audiobooks. Yeah. Convincingly. Or we could be, makes JD look even taller one and two. 
<laughs> we just need to build a replica house, but slightly smaller, like basically a <laughs> hobbit, a regular house. And you and I walk around in it, and we feel like giants, except we look like regular people in this small house. And then JD comes in, and he has to bow down yeah. as he enters. He, he gandals the whole sitcom. <laughs> we do this. JD, yeah. I assume that you're listening. Get in touch. Yeah, JD, if you haven't had any offers yet, is this your best one? I'm going to start building a hobbit house. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Right, so the headhunter. Yes, who the heck is the headhunter? Because <laughs> she's not from Classic, I presume. She's not from Classic. She's from Audiobook, and specifically from the Eighth Doctor Adventures. I see. Now the... Or I hear, I should say. <laughs> not having heard the previous Eighth Doctor Adventure audiobooks, this will not have had the same effect on you as it did on me. Right. So when she shows up, uh, we've already met Karen. We know that Karen was sort of the companion of the headhunter, and the headhunter is... She's not the master or Missy, but she's almost like the sort of Moriarty to to the Doctor. To McGann. To McGann, yeah. At least in this run of the audiobooks. So when the headhunter shows up and she's using a pseudonym, or what, she's, she's incognito. Yes, I'm Kate Bradbury, we've never met. Yeah, when that voice suddenly turns up, mm-hmm. everyone in audiobook land gets goosebumps because we all know that that is the headhunter. And is the headhunter someone you look forward to hearing the return Yeah, of? because she was a fantastic antagonist. Oh. oh, I'm trying to remember which ones she was in. I can only think of two now, actually. One was my favourite one, possibly prior to this, we'll see, which was Human Resources. Yeah. Also a double feature. It was really good. She was in that one. That was her first one. And Karen was in that as well, as sort of her assistant, I think. Then later on, in another one, the title of which I can't remember, but it was set in Stockholm. Oh, wow. Bingo bongo. So obviously I I remember that audiobook except for the title. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on, I'll find out what it was called. Swedish Meatballs. (laughs) That's what it was called. There you go. I'm finding out. Uh, Talk amongst yourselves. Okay, it was called Grand Theft Cosmos. Oh, yeah, I wasn't going to guess that. (laughs) Oh, and I just see that I haven't tagged the headhunter or Karen in the Vindex, so that's about to change. Yeah, so the headhunter was this sort of antagonist. She's basically a mercenary. She works for various bad guys who just needs a... She's like an evil project manager. Right. And in Human Resources, it was the Cybermen, it was Mondasian Cybermen, and this incredibly evil conglomerate, and they're just like, oh, well, we need someone to basically just get flesh in here, flesh and brains, and they employ the headhunter, and that's how the whole thing, her her nickname came about, because she was a headhunter getting people new careers, including Lucy Miller, via the human resources department, except human resources, obviously, flesh for Sidemen, and the nickname just stuck. uh, Well, apparently it didn't just stick, it became how everyone in this podcast knows her, Yeah. yeah, and nothing else about her. Yeah. That's also true. <laughs> Do we know anything about who played the headhunter? Well. Because she does make an impact. Yeah, the headhunter was played by Katrina Olsen, who I'm just looking her up now, actually, because she played just lots and lots and lots of different things, and I cannot, for the life of me, remember what all that stuff was. Okay, I've got the list in front of me now. You know what? I'm just going to read out a few things. In fact, she shows up at the headhunter in tons of episodes across the Eighth Doctor Adventures. Here we go. Uh, she played Davros. <laughs> what? <laughs> hey? No, sorry. She was in the audiobook Davros. Oh, okay. Shan. Oh, my goodness. I haven't heard that one. She was in The Dark Husband, The Death Collectors, Spider's Shadow, whatever that is. I wonder if that's another eight-leg one. 
She was in the Sarah Jane Smith series, in Fatal Consequences, in Bernie Summerfield. I don't know what that is. Mm. I think that might be the Time Lady series. I'm not sure. She was in, again, as Shan, in the I Davros series. I, that, just calling something I Davros. <laughs> <laughs> That's half the battle one. Yeah, done. And uh, she's been in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 audiobooks in the Eighth Doctor Adventures. Well, as hang on there. different roles, mostly, oh, okay. the, mostly the Headhunter, but also in other roles. Oh, wow. It's pretty okay. amazing. So the Headhunter, the way that she's also appeared in other episodes is that very often she's chasing the Doctor. For some reason, she wants to get the Doctor. But she never catches up with him. So there are lots of episodes where she'll she'll show up just as the doctor is leaving, and we just oh, we right. recognize the voice, and she's just oh blasted, just missed him again, and she says something witty, and then that's it. Is that then tied into this part of the explanation in this episode, which is that they got a DNA sample of Lucy at some point, and they've been trailing the TARDIS in its time wake, as the doctor says. So it would make sense that they would just turn up. Just as he's leaving. I, I guess so, yeah. I yeah. guess so. I, in fact, now it's sort of been... Rec- I hadn't really thought about it, but yeah, you're right. I think it's now been tied up very neatly. In fact, had I thought about it more, I probably would have been more impressed because so far you're thinking, oh, she's after the Doctor, but in fact she's after Lucy, who is also with the Doctor. Mm. It's pretty great. And it sounds like she was after Lucy to begin with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, but go. But that's not the suspicion going through this series or these two or three series because she's not the protagonist the doctor yeah. is yeah well maybe that's maybe that's a little plus point there you go I, that's definitely a plus point and karen is basically just her companion anyway she's yeah. like the igor to her frankenstein <laughs> yeah okay well we sort of did a b scale yeah but we're also jumping hither and yon yes we are so should go we just it. briefly sort of sketch the feel free okay well this serial is four 25 to 30 minute parts which is, we're sorry to say, Podcast Lander, we're sorry to realise, quite an undertaking. <laughs> I mean, the cannibalists seem like a breeze compared to this. It really was quite difficult to listen to all this back to back. But maybe though... that's why this was released separately. Yeah. Yeah, probably. So how long a, or how short a time frame did you listen to all of this in? About two hours, five minutes. Oh, there you go. So you, you <laughs> listen to it in one go. I listened to it once in one go and once in two goes, okay. but over like two days. And yeah, you're right. It's not meant for binging necessarily. Right. It's sort of exhausting because in a film you have three acts yeah. and there's a lot of preparatory prevarication and all that stuff. But in this one, I wish I perhaps heard this before we wrote our own audiobook. Oh, really? Because Why? one of Peter Zunich's criticisms, constructive but valid, uh-huh. was that there wasn't much action in the first two or perhaps three parts of our <laughs> four-part audiobook. There's a massive action crescendo <laughs> yeah. towards the end. Yes, that's and true. Point taken, Peter. Because I'm coming from mostly watching films where there's it's now as formulaic as it's ever been, superheroes, big, mighty CGI smash at there's the end. There's a boss fight at the end, yeah. Yes, there's a boss fight. Whereas... In this, every half hour builds up to something and there's a crescendo and then there's more intrigue planted in part two and some of that is resolved and some of it is laid for part three and then in part three the same happens in part four and, and then you get the big thing and it, it really takes you on a roller coaster. Well, which... maybe this is a lesson to be learned for our next endeavour. Well, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. But experienced all at once, it was quite taxing. <laughs> yeah, agrees. Agrees. So since we're making audiobook comparisons... If we stay just on the topic of production, 
now that you've been involved in an audiobook production, how did you feel about the production values here? I'm not saying like, oh, was it better or worse? Because obviously it's better. It's it's big finish and they do a fantastic job. Yeah, and this but, isn't the first one they did. Well, certainly not. But are you now more aware of some of these details and were there nuances that maybe you could glean in this audiobook that you feel otherwise might have escaped you? Well, there's another thing that Peter Zunich drew attention to. Oh. Which was that our screaming was a little lackluster. It was, yeah. And you know what? Peter's theory, I believe his theory was that were we recording late at night, were there neighbours who might otherwise have been offended? I think that's what he said, in fact, yeah. in his review. Yeah, it's spot on. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're not recording in a soundproof studio in a dedicated building. No, we are currently in, in the dining room. Let's, let's give it that very posh name. Wall to wall with my neighbours. <laughs> yeah, recording behind the chimney as if that makes any, <laughs> any difference. Any difference whatsoever. Just a little extra thickness. Although, yeah. that never goes Miss. Hey, so, <laughs> so, oh, that's completely put me off. What was I talking about? So, yes, excellent scream work throughout okay. from multiple characters, Stephen Moore included. Stephen Moore can let rip. My goodness. <laughs> I thought excellent use of music and little music cues to build up tension. Well, that is how I knew instantly that Karen was. That and Lucy's suspicious reaction to her. Oh, I see. But the music really hammers it home, like... She just bumps into a woman on the street. Yeah. So, yeah, there's no room for misinterpretation there. Okay, I don't remember that one in particular, but in general, I was quite impressed with it. Yeah, I think it can be a bit heavy-handed, to be honest. Okay. And I'm not saying that as an argument for a sort of cheapo, light-touch next production or anything, but in the first part... Lucy is basically drafted, enlisted, inducted, initiated, thank you, thesaurus.com, into this cult. And Karen introduces her to Rob. Now, Rob is very softly spoken. And okay, he's pretty creepy. Yeah. And if you've never been in a cult, I mean, he represents exactly the sort of calm exterior with, with the machinations lurking underneath. But you can figure that out without the music always going... Boom. Whenever he's talking, whenever he's trying to manipulate her, I would just like that to breathe and do it by itself, and I'd hear more of his performance without being distracted from it by this over the top. I don't know if you thought that. I I do probably agree. Not probably. I do agree with you, thinking back to some of those scenes. But now I'm not hugely experienced in this, but is that not kind of traditional in radio drama? That you have someone just banging cymbals and, and making ominous noises in the background of okay. the dialogue. So, so it's just rather tradition. Than what, rather than what we did in our audiobook, for example. I mean, format-wise, this differs greatly from Operation Pandorica. Yeah. So do you think that maybe some of these elements... You listen to Cannibalists as well. These things happen in Cannibalists as well, I'm sure. Yeah, Cannibalists is, a, is just crazy over the top. It's a, yeah, it's a very elaborate soundscape. Yeah, and it's a freewheeling carnival of death for two hours. Whereas this, Rob is being quite subtle and nuanced in his arguments. He's twisting what Lucy says. Yeah. But so, would you want that to be just on silence? Maybe not on silence. They have background music. They are in BBC Television Centre. But they don't have background music in that one, do they? Well, not background music. Background sound effects. Yeah. And hubbub. Yeah. So just stick with the hubbub. Or have the silence itself be oppressive. Like, they go to a room, and the hubbub goes away, and it's just him and Lucy, and it's one-on-one, and it's really super intense. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's an option. 
rather than he says something and it's like that that really connected with lucy and it makes her anxious and fearful sheridan smith can convey that in her next line she doesn't need the plangent chord at the same time undoubtedly but i think that there's a temptation to overcompensate a little bit in audio only productions so that many of the images that you conjured with your examples a moment ago they're just that they are images to me i picture them as on tv or in film right so you have two people standing awkwardly close to each other uncomfortably close to each other there is no background music whatsoever but we see them and we can read their body language etc and it is awkward but we still have the visual there to you know fill all the gaps whereas when you're doing an audio only production i think there's that temptation to go yeah but how do we add an, an equivalency to all that visual awkwardness, all that oh. visual discomfort? I mean, well, we do that by having this bass note in the background. I mean, we made fun of that in Operation Pandorica. Whenever the oh. Daleks showed up, there was always the dun dun dun. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the Daleks. You can't misinterpret the Daleks. <laughs> for Unless that reason, face. But for that reason also, you could argue that we didn't need to use that dun-dun-dun in Operation Pandorica and instead just rely on the fact that everyone recognizes the Dalek voices. Yeah, but what I'm saying is we were right and these guys are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what they could have done okay. also is they could have had Rob... You know, he, he, he can get really close to the microphone and just... So he's two inches from Lucy's shaking head. Yeah. And he's just whispering poison into her ear. And is this not creeping you the fuck out? It is. Well, yeah. There you go. True. Come so, on. Back off, know, man. Just, just, just take my word for it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to skip in the interest of plot and a comparison right through. Lucy gets inducted. The eight legs are there. The doctor goes into a coma. He gets out of the coma through a, a Time Lord technology, a stellar manipulator, a star, essentially, is homing in on Earth, and the Queen is going to use it to send a psychic pulse throughout the universe and make everyone worship her. And at the end, it's thwarted, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on in between. The Queen Spider ends up coming out of Lucy, getting onto the Headhunter, yeah. and the Headhunter and the Queen have a sort of final mental showdown, and the Headhunter dies. Yeah, she sacrifices herself. Having spent 16 episodes as the antagonist, she saves the day. Yes. Now, because of what you just said, and because of what you hear over the two hours, yeah, that scene is quite complex in terms of how you react to it, in that the headhunter is definitely an amoral villainess, as the Doctor has described her here. Yeah. She has done something brilliant at the same time. She has sacrificed herself, but in doing that, she may have done that because she didn't want anyone to know who she truly was, and... What was the motivation behind that and the intention behind that? Like, the Doctor thinks if he knows the Headhunter's real name, perhaps he can get her to mentally hang on to that and not succumb to the Spider Queen killing them both at the same time. Yeah. But she doesn't do that. And so there's mystery there and there's ambiguity and there's tension. Wait, and how does this factor in with... Behind all of that, or yeah. over the top of all of that, smothering all of that... You have the most basic musical accompaniment. A drum, of, dramatic of, music. Yeah, yeah, someone is dying, so the violins like are soaring yeah, exactly. away. Exactly. It's like, oh, it's a tragedy. Someone is dying. It's got to be the worst thing because they're dying. And that just erases everything else that you could be thinking about and experiencing at that oh, moment. I don't know why I didn't think about this while I was listening to it. You're right, and I know exactly the bloody string quartet that you're talking about. <laughs> 
but while I was listening to these, and the second time was just a couple of days ago, I genuinely felt that the sound production, and I feel specifically also the music, not mostly the music, but also the music, was well done. Right. Oh, now I'm, I want to kick my two-year younger self in the groin for having missed these details, <laughs> but uh, okay. All right, okay. I take your point. I, I mean, point. it's certainly well-recorded and well-mixed, Yeah. but... Oh, yeah, uh, of course it is. Yeah, these guys are professionals, but I just think they could dial it back a touch. Okay. Okay, further audio production notes, but here, some positive ones. Okay. The actual action crescendo is tremendous. I mean, in terms of just pure sound effects mixing, it is really well done. Yeah. In a way that our audiobook crescendo, the action crescendo is not. (laughs) This is very well layered and it's very neatly done. You can still follow the action. It is very clear what is happening and who is doing what. Most of the time. I don't feel that I was confused by it in any uh, at any point. Okay, maybe this is to do with you having seen the Planet of the Spiders, but what is happening when throughout this audiobook, the last 90 minutes of the two hours, let's say, there's this sound effect that's like... <laughs> like, are the crystals firing oh, okay. stuff? So this was going to be another one of my positives, but it dawns on me that this audiobook takes for granted that you either know or have taken the time and made the effort to go on YouTube these spiders so that you are familiar with the backstory. Right. And that is very unfair by this audiobook. Well, no, I accept that I could have done that. But it is unfair. Let's stick a pin in that and talk about that in a second. But so to your point about the sound effects, I think all of the sound effects are either taken directly from the Pertwee serial. Oh, so they are authentic, quote-unquote, authentic Metabilis spider sound effects. Oh, which gives audiobook podcast land just a little extra thrill. Yeah, absolutely. It's the equivalent of when we had Autons show up in the Eccleston episode, Rose. Mm-hmm. We had the exact same gun sound effect as we had back when Autons showed up in Speared from Space. Mm. So here it's just been done in, in audiobook form. The spider voice effect is also spot on. The spider queen speech effect, that reverberating voice. Okay. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. But, okay, so back to the pin. This is why it's unfair. Because McGann's Eighth Doctor is even written to give a praise of Planet of the Spiders. And that praise is clearly there for those who have not seen it. Mm-hmm. Like This is what happened at the end of it. I succumbed to radiation poisoning, Planet of the Spiders being Pertwee's very last episode. He even says, oh, and I died, and we get that little... The, Dr. Sangakara makes the reference to reincarnation and so on and so forth. Yeah. So there are all these notes there for people who are not familiar with them. I'm pretty sure at a certain point he gives, maybe not a detailed, but certainly kind of a summary of the backstory of the spiders. Yes, right. He, he talks about them in the caves. Oh, so there you go. He then. doesn't mention the two legs by name. The human colonists, I didn't realise that they were from Earth. I didn't know anything about their time-travelling capabilities. Okay, fine. But yes, he does drop a few clues so that you're not completely in the dark. Yeah. So, to me, that suggests you now no longer need to go back and do any research. I've now given you all the information that you need. Yeah, yeah, but... But there's never an explanation as to what those sound effects are. No. It sounds like some sort of space weapon or whatever. Yeah, it sounds like a ray gun. Exactly. Which it's not. Oh, And there's also no explanation for 
At a certain point, I mean, they do use the less perfect, the misshapen blue crystals as shields when they're being fired upon, right? Right. And that also, actually, on its own, it sounds like, all oh, right, so it's like a little mirror. You shoot a laser at me, I'll reflect it or I'll, I'll absorb it in some way. Yeah. But in actual fact, in the serial Planet of the Spiders, humans who have been taken over by spiders can suddenly shoot sort of Emperor Palpatine-esque lightning from their fingers. Oh, right. And that's the noise that you're hearing. Oh, and that's what's going on. That's what's going on. Oh. So, so the humans that have been taken over by spiders, the eight legs who are among us, they're firing lightning out of their hands at the Doctor and Lucy and everyone else. Okay. Be- and that's a visual that's lost on you because yeah. this audiobook is unfair in that regard. Well, I, I understand that that would be very difficult to explain. No, you could explain it. You could have some throwaway line of, oh, how can they shoot lightning? And then you just add a wibbly-wobbly explanation. Oh, yes. Yeah. Someone asked the doctor, my God, how can they do that? Oh, oh well, it they... happened back on Metabolus 3. Yeah. Or just, oh, yeah, I learned that. It's the harnessing the energy of the blue crystals. They can refract the electromagnetic pulses in every ion that blah, 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 blah. It's just babble, right? And, yes. And then you have an explanation for it. And all of a sudden, the audience knows that, all oh, right, there are lightning bolts being fired here. Yeah. Because there is a point where um, Stephen Moore, playing Clark Goodman, uh-huh. the leader of the cult, is disgraced, displaced as head of the cult, as Lucy slash Spider Lucy slash Spider Queen takes uh-huh. over and boots him out as events overtake him because he was brainwashed into setting up the cult to begin with, but he didn't realize it was going to go down this way. He sees everybody turning into spiders and makes an escape, which sounds completely implausible. I agree. Just flat out. I don't know if it's more or less implausible if you're imagining a ray gun or lightning from the fingers. But he says, you're going to kill me, aren't you? And whoever it is goes, yes. And then he escapes. But that, but just that's, escapes. But that's not bad audio production. That's just bad writing. Well, not bad writing. Because in general, I'm really happy with the writing of this double feature uh-huh. with a few key exceptions and this would be one such exception okay and it's an exception that is also mirrored in planet of the spiders which jim and i also address oh which is that planet of the spiders is is predominantly set in 1974 in this buddhist temple and in that serial there are just these regular english dudes who all of a sudden whilst at a buddhist retreat accidentally summon telepathic electric shock shooting space spiders who speak English. Right. And everyone's just like, ooh, oh, well, we we should probably leave. I mean, this could be dangerous. <laughs> but, but no... <laughs> this could be... <laughs> I mean, that's not a direct quote. I'm kind of paraphrasing. But, I mean, there are scenes where these regular dudes from 1974's England... Yep, Ian and Tony. ...just step wide like, wide broad-leggedly around a gigantic spider because they don't want to get too close to it but there's never a scene where someone goes fuck spiders speaking english you know that never happens yeah and in this one you have his grandiose escape from there he should be panicked he should all of a sudden his whole world is crumbling he was on the throne until a moment ago, and now he's being usurped, not even by humans, you know. I don't think Stephen Moore underacts that part. I think he sounds fairly flustered. He absolutely does sound fairly flustered, but would you react the way that he did? 
Well, he runs out into the car park and yelling, everyone get out, you've got to go, go away, you've got to leave, they're going to kill you all. That rings true. It's the fact that someone says, I'm going to kill you, shoots the ray gun, and he's got out a side exit. <sighs> There's another bit that's underacted, Okay, fair actually. Enough. Right, the worst it. bit of underacting in this serial, I think, is when Kelly... Kelly is... The writer, journalist. Yes, crusading against what begins as a cult, and she's convinced it's a cult to the end, but without realising its true function. But she hates cults, and she hates people being fearful and panicking and misinformed. I think I know the scene you're talking about, but go ahead. It's when uh-huh. she and the Doctor are getting coffee. Oh, I don't remember the coffee, but go ahead. And she says, wait a minute, my bag was down here. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's also one of the poorly... Yes, yeah. that's yeah, also basically, a scene. She's written a book that's coming out in five days, and it's going to dispel all the mystery yeah. about this cult, and it's going to be a huge thing. And she's staked her journalistic literary career on this thing and on it not getting out. And the doctor just sort of appears in the doorway, sort of waggling the book, going, ah, I just thought I'd borrow it. And she goes like... And she doesn't even raise her voice. And she doesn't run after him. No! She doesn't go, well, that's my livelihood. That is the truth that I've been working incredibly hard to uncover in your hands. Ah, he can clearly run faster than me. And my scooter is elsewhere. Yeah, I agree. That's not a great scene. The other one, the one that I thought that you were going to bring up, but yours is actually even worse. But <laughs> the other one that I was going to bring up. Okay, on, let's hear it. It was when she's made a fairly big deal, maybe five minutes prior, about how it is impossible to get your hands on a blue crystal because they're worth tremendous amounts on the black market. And if you have one, then you're most likely not going to part with it. because Not without demanding someone's house. But even if you weren't interested in monetary gains, you would be more interested in saving your soul and keeping this blue crystal because that is your key to redemption or to enlightenment or whatever it is that you believe as a member of the Eightfold Truth. Yeah. So then fast forward five minutes and she just goes, oh, yeah, well, one of my contacts just dropped off this blue crystal over here. And the doctor's reaction is like, oh, cool. Well, then we can use that. She goes, yeah, let's do that. All right, cool. So let's do that. Let's do that. (laughs) Shall we do that? Let's do that. I'm glad we decided to do that. And there's no oomph built around the... But you've set certain expectations. Now you've broken down those. You've worked against them. Subverted them. But there's no oomph behind it. There's no impact to that subversion. Yeah. The fakery of the tension is thereby laid bare. Yeah, it's nullified. Yeah. Yeah. We should talk about the plot at some point as well. Well, I've been, trying to, I've been trying to squeeze the plot in. Okay. Hey, here and there. There is a lot of plot and structure in this episode. And it gains like a, a whole secondary plot line in the second episode, sort of halfway through the second episode, with the not-quite-nethersphere. Yes. Did you also get the same vibes? As in Death in Heaven. Yes, exactly. Missy's Cyberman lets upload people to the cloud, and that is the afterlife. Yeah, Plot Death line. in Heaven, which also oh. stars Sanjeev Bhaskar. What? Yeah, as a unit colonel. No way. Yes way. He is the link. He walked up to Moffat one day and said, you know, I've got an idea. <laughs> <laughs> I've totally stolen this from a Big Finish episode that I was in. <laughs> <laughs> but you put your name on it. Give me a cameo. I won't say a word. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't remember his character in, in uh, Death in Heaven, but... Well, to cover that quite quickly, he's not given very much to do, and Capaldi sort of dismisses him as a man scout. A man scout? Yeah, because he keeps trying to salute the doctor, and oh, the doctor right. doesn't like saluting. Oh, I business. do remember this character. 
Okay. Well, no, I don't. I remember that scene. Capaldi, I, I only watched the five minutes of the episode Sanjeev Bhaskar was in, and Capaldi's never been grumpy, my goodness. <laughs> That's saying a lot as well. But yeah, sorry. So carry on, Nethersphere. Nethersphere, yeah, I mean, it, it is essentially the same idea. You have a digital afterlife, which just comprises a hard drive to which you upload the consciousness of various beings whose bodies are then taken over, in the meantime, are taken over by some other malevolent alien force. In the case of Death in Heaven, it's the Cybermen. In the case of this one, it is the Eight Legs. Yeah, but here it's a little woollier, a little less neat and clean in that the Doctor talks about merging virtual and real concepts or something? I don't quite understand that. So at a certain point, close to the end of part two, in my notes, I had written something to the effect of, but where are the servers? Like, you're uploading all this stuff, but there's no spaceship anywhere. And then he reminded me, oh, actually, everything's being uploaded to this gigantic Time Lord machine that is the sun, the rebel sun, the stellar manipulator. Yeah. So you wouldn't want something as prosaic as servers to be the machinery driving the heart of a Time Lord gadget thing. But how do those two mesh? Is it just that a stellar manipulator is, I mean, it's a machine, it's technology, so it probably has memory banks and you can fill that with whatever you want. If you just scrape off some of the software that drives a stellar manipulator, you don't necessarily need whatever. I suppose the Doctor is talking about computer code, like, Time Lord coding, so it would be memory banks, etc. That is it, right? Yeah. But then maybe I've just missed this. What do you think? Is there a link between this afterlife-esque realm that exists only in hard drives aboard the Stellar Manipulator and the actual Stellar Manipulator itself? Because that is a tremendously powerful weapon that is then going to be scouring the universe for other planets to potentially engulf Well, if it's controlled by someone. But it would be controlled by someone, right? It would be controlled by all these people worshipping the Queen. No, I don't think they're... I think it has to be controlled externally. They are inside it somehow. They are part of its energy. Oh, okay, so they do play a part then. Are they powering it? Well, I think they're inside it, but I... But why? You don't even need them. Oh, it got very intricate at the end of this episode. I think perhaps they would telepathically... They were like a telepathic repository of worship for the Queen from which she could beam out a signal. But she has to be in control of them and they have to be brainwashed to support her for any of that to happen. Once she's dead, then they're just all stranded there. So here's what I think. But again, this might be completely wrong. And the reason I'm thinking this is because Lucy at one point says this realm, everything is just all white. It has no furniture, basically. There's nothing visual about it. It was also the Queen's escape plan. Yeah. If she needs to, she would be traveling through there. And constantly, other life forms from all over the universe who have been worshipping her and who are basically being killed, they are being transported to this place and they think that they are now in heaven. Yeah. Is her idea to empty the world of living beings, of conscious beings and move all of their consciousness, says, into these memory banks. Now, I, and I think, that would be her matrix where she is being worshipped by everyone. Well, I think it's a mistake to think of them as separate, because I think the web, that is the central node of the web, and anyone who dies, comes there, is under her spell, worships her, great. But from there, it extends out telepathically to all the living as well. But, but, 
Lucy is separated from her body. The queen now owns Lucy's body. Mm-hmm. And Lucy exists only as consciousness in the form of code that the doctor downloads to the TARDIS. Yeah. Puts into the so-called brain gun and fires into Lucy's body. Yeah. Thereby expelling the Spider Queen. Uh-huh. Does that not indicate separation between the two? Well, it indicates that the Doctor can break a link in this giant web the Queen is constructing, but nobody else has the capability. But the Queen has gotten rid of Lucy. So there's, up until a certain point, Lucy... Okay, hang on, wait. Potential spoiler. Have you seen Get Out? I haven't seen Get Out. Oh, we're not going to talk about Get Out then. Wait, I have a better comparison. Okay. A very recent example. The 2019 New Year's Day special, Resolution, where you have... This is a really good comparison, I think. Where you have... Her name's Lynn, right? The archaeologist. There's something on her back. There's something on her back. This is also a weird roundabout discussion in Planet of the Spiders in that review. So we have her voice, and we have the voice of the Dalek, which actually is not entirely dissimilar from the voice of the spiders or the eight legs. Mm -hmm. And they're sort of sharing a consciousness. And we have that same scenario with Lucy and the Queen up until a certain point when Lucy is expelled from her own body and sent to this white place. Yeah. To me, that expulsion indicates a clear separation of consciousness and physical entity. In that one... And at that point, phys- it's, physically, yes. And that's what I mean. And at that point, it's basically just the squid Dalek controlling the body and Lynn is now in space. Yeah, sorry, the links are all telepathic. It is just data stored up there that could be telepathically accessed by the TARDIS or the Queen if she really wanted, I suppose. It's not full of bodies because okay. Kelly's lying in the car park. The glow in her body shoots upwards and oh, yeah. her corporeal form is left behind. No, I wasn't thinking... Okay, sorry, we, so we were talking cross-purposes there, but okay, fine. But yes, talking about resolution brings me to something that I've always had problem with. Perhaps uh-huh. dating back to Saturday morning cartoons or whatever. Oh, what's that? And it comes up a fair amount, and it came up in resolution, and it comes up in this as well, which is where characters are defeated by an internal struggle. Oh. Now... Yeah, okay. There's the, oh, no, you don't... Oh, no, you can't! And it can only really be represented by people talking to themselves. Take the climactic battle in Kung Fu Panda 3. (laughs) Now, I'm definitely a massive Kung Fu Panda fan, and it didn't just happen to be on the telly over Christmas. I'm really sorry, but this one installment of the Kung Fu Panda franchise may have eluded me. (laughs) Okay. Right, so in Kung Fu Panda 3, Kai, voiced by J.K. Simmons, gets all of Poe, the Kung Fu Panda voiced by Jack Black, gets all of his chi. Jack Black? Yeah. All right, okay. And even the great J.K. Simmons can't sell, as an actor, the whiplash. Basically, they're in the spirit realm. This is this tangent is going to end soon, I promise. Okay. And J.K. Simmons wants all of Poe's chi. And Poe just just like, you want my chi? You take it. And he blasts him with the chi. And J.K. Simmons... too much. Yes, exactly. J.K. Simmons, for, for about three seconds, is like, this is great. It's mine. It's finally mine. And then... For no reason at all. It's like, it's all too much. It's all too strong. I can't take it. I'm going to splooge G everywhere. I'm a fucking G ejaculation. And it goes all over the screen. And Poe wins. And it's like, that's no resolution. That's a nothing ending. It's arbitrary in the way. It constructs tension. I agree. And then resolves it. It's like a control countdown. Oh, which I know you hate. So I agree 100% with what you just said. And this happens twice. 
at the end of their serial. Wait, it happens, I know once when it happens, when is the other time? You have Lucy blasted back into her body, the Queen struggles for a bit, and Lucy's just like, no, I'm stronger than you now, buzz off. And off she goes. And okay. then she gets into the headhunter and then we have the and then we, yeah, sort of yeah. struggle that I talked about earlier. And, and for a while the headhunter's like, no! And the queen's like, yes! And then the headhunter's like, oh, I've got the better of you. And the queen's like, no! And, and <sighs> Okay, so I agree with you 100%. However, this, I think, is meant to be a, frankly, perfect mimicry of the end of Plant of the Spiders. Oh. So here's the resolution of Plant of the Spiders. Okay. Brace yourself, it's not entirely dissimilar. So the <laughs> she's not the queen. There is a queen in Planet of the Spiders as well. There is, however, an... Oh, by the way, I don't know how large you think spiders are. That was going to be another question. Because you don't get that visual, and no one explains that visual to you, and not even the cover of this audiobook, or either one of them, shows you how big the spider is. At this point, all I've seen is arachnids in the UK. I'm assuming that you've seen the image. I know that we looked at the image when we reviewed Turn Left, because we have you know Donna with a beetle backpack. Yeah. So I know that at the time we also made the comparison with Plant of the Spiders, where we get Sarah Jane Smith, it turns out, for just like a minute... Oh, wearing a no. spider on her back. But there are lots of other people wearing spiders on the backs, and that's how big they are. They are roughly the size of the beetle backpack in turn left, or if you recall the image of Sarah Jane Smith with the spider. Okay. It's like wearing a poodle on your back, right? Not huge at all. I don't know if that corresponds to the visual that you had. To be honest, I didn't actually pitch them on people's backs most of the time. They talked about that later. So uh, that is what they do. That's yeah. their signature move, is they clamber onto your back just like the Dalek did in Resolution, but then not at all explained in the serial, and they don't touch upon it here because it's like, oh, that's unsafe, unexplained territory, wouldn't touch that with a barge pole. They just go invisible. Oh! And people don't notice it, so they just see humans. Which is how Lucy can be wandering around as Spider Queen Lucy for ages, and everyone's just fine with it. Exactly. Again, very unfair by this audiobook or by the writing of this audiobook, because that is never clarified. The headhunter could definitely That's a one-liner. That, that yeah. is a one-liner. Well, I don't know what you're so upset about. Nobody's going to be able to see it anyway. Again, it's unfair because this audiobook purports to relay all of the relevant information to people who are not familiar with this classic serial from 1970-bloody-4, which I don't think everyone who listens to modern Doctor Who is... And I don't think it's fair to assume that everyone is, because everyone isn't completionist, or everyone isn't a super nerd, or everyone just isn't necessarily interested in 70s sci-fi. Well, it's all breadcrumbing, isn't it? First of all, they get you to buy the second half of this two-parter, so then you have to buy the first part, and then it still isn't explained, so you have to go and buy the DVDs. But will you, or will you just be... I'll just borrow them off you, because of course you own them all. Or if you're not part of a Doctor Who podcast... Would you maybe develop a distaste for this particular alien and just go, I don't give a shit. Like, I'm not going to look up this Pertwee serial because it never made any sense yet. Yeah, I'm just going to watch Turn Left again for the sweet, sweet Donna Noble. Because <laughs> I hate myself. <laughs> and I can't find the whip that I usually use to bludgeon. Okay, what, okay right. So, so flagellate is what you're after. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. So, all right. So, back to Plant of the Spiders. Yeah. There is a queen there as well. She is a regular-sized spider. By regular-sized spider, I mean poodle-sized. But then there is this other spider. Oh. Who, for some reason, got even more of the blue crystal energy. This spider is known as the Great One. Okay. And it is the size of a fucking dinosaur. Like, it is a gigantic spider. Like, macro-sized Yes. Wow. Yes. Like classic Who macro size. Yeah. 
And that spider has the very original, actually in 1974, compared to this one, very original intention of using the blue crystals in a particular configuration to loop her own intellect onto itself to develop because she's been mutated by the blue crystals to become more intelligent. Yeah. So she wants to put the blue crystals in a particular configuration to loop that further development. Like a perpetual intellect machine. And to grow her intellect ad infinitum. Literally. Yeah, the doctor does explain that in this episode. Ah, okay, yeah, sorry. Okay. So and anyway, so that scene it also unfolds as follows. <clears throat> <clears throat> right. Oh, I'm so clever. Oh, I understand everything. Oh, my plan is going flawlessly. Oh, this feels so good. Oh, wait, what's wrong? Oh, no, no, oh, no, someone stop it. Ah! Exactly like this one. I see. So, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Maybe I'll overlay some applause. Yay. Woo. So that's how, that's how <laughs> it is. And I think they've added the ending to this one. Because they want to make sort of a pastiche of that scene. Yeah. They want to go, well, just in case you are one of the people who saw that one, you're going to like this. We're going to copy it. Mm. I don't bite that hook. I, yeah. I don't find that to be a positive attribute. Well, okay. Here's a question that this is verging upon that I had in mind. Okay. Which is that audiobooks obviously represent this massive parallel industry. Yeah. We review the shows and we're like, audio, pfft novels but they're a gigantic volume of literature and creative output oh yeah how valid is it to just create a foe that someone else 40 years ago came up with and just replay it in a different context i mean there is a lot going for this episode and i've been much more negative about it than my rating will ultimately suggest likewise by the way and so it kept taking me by surprise. I also can't make all the connections back to every last thing that they copied from Planet of the Spiders. Yeah. So I guess I'm asking you, how cheap is this in terms of a creative endeavor? I don't think it's cheap at all. Okay. I think, I think unfortunately, they target their homage in the wrong places. Right. It's perfectly fine to have a few parallels if they are in minor scenes, if they are perpetrated by ancillary characters or, or even by, by main, by protagonists, but in scenes that are irrelevant to the eventual resolution of the plot. That aren't load-bearing. Yeah, that aren't the actual climax, the apex of your narrative. You don't want to blow your load on something that is just a copy of something else because someone might recognize it. The fact that you as a fan might recognize something, like, and this happens all across TV all the time. Oh yeah, not every second has to be out of the clear blue sky. Yeah, and in Doctor Who, there are decades and decades worth of Doctor Who, so at this point, every now and then, there will be a blatant reference back to classic Who. There are tons of times when someone's wearing a scarf or someone's whatever, you know, the fez shows up every now and then. There are all these little references to prior Doctor Who. But if you were to just replay an ending of prior Doctor Who that everyone recognizes, then that would feel like a failure. So that's the problem here. Overall, the audiobook, to me, having uh, seen Planet of the Spiders, overall, the audiobook here is actually really fresh, and it's a nice take on the spiders. Right. But up until the very end, when I'm expecting everything to reach ahead and just be even more satisfying than it has been to date, it deflates itself 
by just copying the thing that it's referencing. Yeah. The fact that they have spiders is already a reference in and of itself. The fact that the doctor mentions radiation poisoning, etc., that's a reference in and of itself. The fact that he actually does get radiation poisoning. He is bombarded with, I can't remember what they were, something, something... Polonium-210? Bingo bongo. That's the parallel that is satisfying enough to anyone who is familiar with Planet of the Spiders. Yeah. You now don't need anything else. Yeah, anyway, I, I don't know if that answers your question. The bit that is a ripoff is fortunately quite small. Unfortunately, in an important part. That's, yeah. that's the pricey, sorry. Okay, let's change tack. Okay. I learned a lot more about Lucy and McGann in this one than I did in Cannibalists in 19. Yeah. Where it's just wailing metal and robot screaming. And most of it is also them just vexation. They're just constantly annoyed with each other. Well, there is a bit of that here. Yeah, she but not like... as much, not as intensely as in Cannibalists where we, where you specifically brought it up. Yeah, and again in this one, actually, they are apart for a lot they are. of the serial. So I didn't learn that much about their interactions. I suppose I got to see a few more sides of each of them separately. Now, part of that is Paul McGann. My exposure to Paul McGann remains ludicrously low. I didn't feel like he had a ton of range in this. Really? He sort of. You need well, to listen to more I do, Doctor Adventures. But in, in this one, a lot happens to him. First of all, he nearly dies. Yeah. He's supposed to be weak. He's supposed to have just woken up out of a coma. But he sort of carries along in the same imperious tone a lot of the time. And not imperious in a bad way, because he's not like the sixth Doctor. He actually values everyone he meets. Yeah. But, but in this one, he's always sort of explaining in this way. And then, this is what we're going to do. So we should go on and do it. And then something terrible happens. Like, well, we're going to have to do this instead. And people die and... There's a little bit of tenderness in his voice when the headhunters die. But he's, he's like, she was brilliant. She, there's a slight bit of breathiness. And then he's right back onto this because we have another thing to do. And I just, I just don't feel like there was a ton there. Do you feel that that is Paul McGann or the Eighth Doctor? I don't know. Okay. Do you remember, which one is it? The other doctor, I knew doctor. you were going to bring this well, up. Well, obviously I am because so, otherwise... Hang on. Hang on. Night of the Doctor. Okay, there you go then. Thank you. We know stuff. We know stuff. We should be doing this podcast. We butt do. out. <laughs> God, I hope it's Night of the Doctor. <laughs> of course I'm going to reference that because he otherwise only appears in audiobooks and in the Doctor Who movie. Let's just go with Night of the Doctor. In that one, I mean, he does, exp- in, to my mind, he does express certain range, but I think uh, why don't you tell me how did you feel about his acting chops and his range as the eighth doctor in that little bonus special it hasn't left the meteoric impact on me that it has on you you bring it up again and again and again well i, I was just it was a really emotional the, the whole 50th anniversary was a hugely emotional deal to me yeah I rewatched it again recently, by the way. It's not as great as I remember it being. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. So the note I've made here, which (laughs) sort of brought this observation to the surface, is that McGann, at one point, deconverts, deprograms Karen and maybe Rob, I don't know, someone else. Rob and David and all those male acolytes really blended together after a while. Anyway, he's deprogrammed two people and he says it's taken an enormous sort of mental effort to break the Spider Queen's hold over them and their beliefs. But tell his voice. 
because he's supposed to be exhausted. He's he's supposed to have not enough power left to even take one more convert on at this point, and he's just going along in the same same tone, the same speed as ever. Do you Dude, think that? But, but be affected. Okay, fair enough. This might just be a case of degustibus. Yeah. I think this is just Paul McGann. This is Paul McGann also kind of in with Nell. I mean, even when he's expressing tremendous anxiety being cornered by Uncle Monty, well, he dear. is still McGanning. He's, he's eighth <laughs> doctoring. Right. I mean, ironically, in a scene that in Withnell and I is there deliberately showcasing his acting talents. Hmm. But I like it. I think that really works. There's a certain theatricality to McGann's Eighth Doctor that I really, really appreciate. That is an excellent word for it. Yes, he he's playing Thank to you. the back row at all times. Yeah. Like everyone yeah, in the exactly. auditorium can hear him, even when he's supposed to be gasping for it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's very true. I guess that sort of ties into other things. Like at some points he's being stern, and I thought he did stern quite well. At other points he's being sort of really sincere. And I, there was an edge to it. And the word you've used, theatricality, sort of explains why that didn't really sit perfectly with me. Like when he's supposed to be accessing a, a sincere emotion, the theatricality just plays against it slightly. And, and I'm like, this doesn't match that voice quite. Degustibus. Right. I love it. Okay. And, okay, here's another thing as well. He's meant to be this Edwardian gentleman style of doctor. Yeah. Right? And and I think that his enunciation, his poise, it works hand in hand with that doctor. Okay. If he were wearing Converse and a really tight hipster suit, then I would probably find that it clashed a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, I should, that makes sense. I think that makes sense. I it think makes that sense. works. And also, I should say that having missed the first 18 of these, okay. I dare say that I would be a lot more used to this by now and have gone along with his character development as he played it and as he put the effort into it and changed it. You know, the first time you hear an Oasis album, and a lot of Oasis songs are samey, but you just hear a wall of noise, and it takes yeah. you five or six listens, and then you realise, wait, every track is ever so subtly different. And I... <laughs> That's I'm, what we're going for as artists. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I expect that phenomenon would happen with McGann's moods were I to listen to some more. Yeah, that's possible. You become more discerning. Yeah, more attuned. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the word. Sorry. You wanted to bring up the taxi driver. Oh, yeah. I, actually, that's a good segue because I was going to say, should we talk about things that we liked? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I found the taxi driver to be a really nice comic relief element in this audiobook and specifically i don't want to toot our collective audiobook taxi horn but it felt like the kind of comic interlude that we might have written into this audiobook had we penned it and we would have done the cockney accent better (laughs) (laughs) well i know i would have And this isn't to say Jim can't do a Cockney accent, but I know that Jim isn't a Cockney, and this guy sounded a bit like Jim doing a Cockney. Uh, well, oh, I, I only said I would have because I do a terrible Cockney. That's the, <laughs> but when I say we would have written it, I really don't mean that. I, I want to go back and clarify that because it sounds very self-aggrandizing. I mean, it was the kind of completely uncalled for humoristic non sequitur that felt tonally disjointed from the rest of the narrative that we would very happily have written down whilst 
at least one of us was bouncing around the front room of this house. Yeah. 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 The scoundrels. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Don't know about that. They don't know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's exactly a line we could have plugged in. Yeah. <laughs> Thought I'd join up, though. I mean, you know, it's uh, Pascal's wager, isn't it? <laughs> So the taxi driver definitely one one element of this that I, I enjoyed. But there are several scenes in this that I thought were really well crafted. Okay. Here's one of my favorites. This is in part two of Eight Truths, where the doctor just, he goes, oh, I'll be right back. He then exits the house, comes back and reveals that he's traveled across all of London and like taken a tube and gone on a bus and yada, 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 gone on a TARDIS and then traveled back into this house and... To us and to Kelly, it's been a mere moment, but to him, he's describing hours and hours of travel and like an afternoon in London town. I loved that scene. I thought it was fantastic. I thought McGann did a spectacular job McGanning it, but doing a fantastic job. Yeah, that is him getting to show off. Yeah, exactly. That's him getting to strut like a peacock. Yes, very much so. He's very good at that. You can imagine his floppy hair. And him sort of pacing from side to side in the room while never breaking gaze with this rapt woman in front of him. And just, you know, mesmerizing her there (laughs) with his McGanning. Oh, McGann. I mentioned that I I saw him once in Paddington (gasps) Station. Goodness. Oh, I was so aroused. I was there for work. This is back in the day when I was still smoking cigarettes and I was standing outside Paddington Station smoking in the area where everyone smokes. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I just see Paul McGann, clearly Paul McGann, just walking, having just gotten off the tube or a train. Or just whatever. walking. Paul McGann doesn't just walk. He struts. He, he was McGanning the hell out of that slope. Just <laughs> <laughs> walking past me, mere meters away. I got a horn like I'd never gotten a horn before. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, whatever the train sound effect is, I forget. No. No, okay, fine. All of those put together describe the state in your trousers, right? Okay, so just in case Paul McGannaber hears this, <laughs> I didn't get a horn, but I was genuinely, and I don't necessarily get this often, but I felt a teeny tiny bit starstruck. Right, yes, okay. And it was similar in effect to going to also something I've mentioned at least a bloody handful of times on Who Back When, meeting Sergeant Benton at Comic-Con in London. Mm-hmm. James, John, John Levine. Okay. And just going, hug, hug. I, I, I can't even speak right now. Like, I, you are too big a part of my childhood. I, I cannot talk. Yeah, anyway, that's what I felt while I was smoking a cigarette, being a grosso. Mm-hmm. And Paul McGann, who's just a dude, walked past me. See, if he'd walked past me, I'd have been like, all right, you don't need to be so showy about it. <laughs> and he would have flopped his hair in your general direction, and you would have gone, oh, okay, no, I get it now. Yeah, yeah, I, re- I repent. <laughs> <laughs> in Paul, we trust. <laughs> what did you like? Give me an example of something that you really enjoyed. Okay, I really like Lucy's suspicious pause, mm. which is when Rob's saying, we can just talk, that's fine too. And he's like, okay. And it's a really tiny bit that they just got perfectly right. She is fantastic in this, right? Yeah, she's dynamite. Yeah. And there are loads of other things, too. That When the Doctor wakes up from a coma, 
they are really good at not explaining what's going on outside his window and they have the audacity to flip between scenes a couple of times before you and just to sort of have the people on the other side talking about it too and also not revealing it and then eventually you let in on the secret yeah and he finally pulls the curtains aside yeah and no it, uh, yeah agrees and i thought kelly was pretty good all the way along really yeah i think i agree with that i thought maybe i had a counter argument but no actually no i think she was really good yeah and as a character also interesting yeah and the actress really committed to her in that the doctor's like kelly i i know you're dead but you can help me with this thing and she doesn't go, all right, then that makes it all better. She's, there's an undercurrent of bitterness that never leaves her voice, even while she's resolving the rest of the plot. There is sadness there that isn't just tossed to one side. Yeah. I like that too. Yeah. But I have touched on this. There is a ton of skipping back and forth between scenes. I reckon there must be, if you count every change of setting and characters, even for a few seconds, even if it just seems like an interlude in another scene, if you count that as a separate scene, there must be hundreds. We had 28, 29 in ours. And okay, they're not delivering protracted monologues like we were, and they didn't have a narrator, but it just is relentless at points. Maybe you didn't notice. I didn't really notice that. Because I much. suppose maybe they got into a rhythm of it and you just sort of were bobbed along in the current. But I noticed it, and then after that, I couldn't stop noticing it, and it didn't stop happening. I definitely felt the lack of a narrator this time. Hmm. And I didn't used to because these never have a narrator. But since (laughs) Operation Pandorica, I now feel the lack of one. I've ruined you for regular audiobooks. (laughs) And specifically in, for example, there's a car chase and the eight legs, or maybe it's not even eight legs. Maybe they just fire regular guns or they throw stones or something at the car. No, sorry, they run over... Kelly. Kelly, is it? Yeah, they run over yeah, Kelly. Kelly's possessed, and she is firing an actual gun. There you go. Oh, yeah, so it's both then. And then they drive off, and Goodman is like, oh, well, I couldn't help, uh, you know, I didn't mean to, yada, yada, yada. But then he starts making references to things that are clearly there just to make up for the fact that we haven't seen it, because this is an audiobook and not a TV episode, and because there's no narrator to explain it to us. So he tells the Doctor, who is in the car with him, and who doesn't need to have this explained to him, that, oh, but he can't see through the windscreen, because it's so cracked, and because it's all frosted. And I was like, yeah, but obviously the Doctor knows this. Yeah. Is he now going to say, yeah, but now they're chasing after us. Now we're in a car. Oh, we're speeding down the road. I mean, I can't think of any other examples, specific examples now, but there were many times where I felt that this is just exposition, exposition that normally we would reserve for this ridiculously over-the-top exposition-only narrator character. The yeah. choir would tell us this. Well, now that we've presented that alternative to podcast land that has become a sort of degustibus situation for them and no one can ever be truly happy in either camp anymore you can't combine the best elements of both into the perfect audiobook so i would be curious to hear what people think of that though if they oh, I'm, I'm talking bullshit but yeah would you not want to hear i'm i'm a little curious if and when we write another audiobook ladies and gents would you prefer us to include or exclude a narrator yeah and if we do include a narrator, do you want it toned down a bit? Yeah, let us know. We want to know these <laughs> stuff. Actually, you know what? Maybe when we sit down, because we will do another one, and when we sit down to start hash out the plot, we have a few more ideas. Do you have some ideas? I have some ideas. Oh. 
Okay, well, later on this year. I've been writing my list of fake ideas, so yeah. I'll get around to some real That's ideas. That's coming up on the blog, ladies and gents. <laughs> uh, so when we get closer to the date, maybe we can put out a little bonus episode and we can ask a few specific questions. Well, we'll see. We'll figure it out. Whatever. Bing bong. And also to do a casting call for any fans who want to be involved. Bing bong. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's, let's get back to this one. Something I liked. Locations. Okay. It felt like even in an audiobook format, they had made an effort to pick good locations. And I'm thinking specifically of two, really. There's the old BBC building. Yep. The, quote, old BBC building. (laughs) Oh, yes. Because at that point, when this was being produced, it was still the BBC building. And part of it still is, but a lot of it has been sold. Uh, Yeah, and a lot, yeah, that's true. And also not renovated, maybe just replaced by new glass and steel, right? Is this still the glass and steel shrimp that is the current BBC, or is this a... Glass and steel shrimp? I thought it was the almost a question mark. Is it a question mark? I feel like it's a... Oh, whatever. I'm, I'm trying to make a shrimp with my arm over here. I think we are talking about the same thing. We are probably talking about the same thing. But okay, so regardless, so we have the old BBC building, at this point, the old BBC building. Which Terry Wogan would stand in front of and say, BBC Television Centre, all that business. Bingo bongo. Yeah. And then we also have the Olympic Village. Yes. And both of these have visuals that as in, they feel like great TV episodes of Doctor Who locations. Yes. I would love to see the Doctor run through the Olympic Village. In fact, that would make for a really good sort of post-apocalyptic scenario. All these abandoned arenas or whatever that either have fallen to the wind or are just gathering dust or have been repurposed and you now have people living in places where occasionally something's budding out that makes you feel like, all right, so they used to have like equestrian tournaments here. <laughs> like this clearly used to be a swimming pool, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. It's a great location for a Doctor Who adventure. Mm-hmm. And it worked even in audiobook format. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Moving slightly from things that we liked, can I ask you a question? Yes. How did you feel about the Dr. Sangakara subplot? I thought that he could have been used better. I thought there was one good bit when he connects with Lucy, who is at the probe, is in the heart of the stellar manipulator rebel son, and is effectively dead. And they're quite chatty for a while. And then he says about praise to the great one. Just comes out with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and there's suddenly this massive U-turn, and he's the level-headed scientist throughout. And he sounded level-headed up to that point, and then just... That was a very good moment. It's a really good moment. Do you know what I thought about it in that moment? No. The God Complex. With Amy Pond, who's having a regular conversation at the bar, and then all of a sudden she just goes, mm, I'm praise him. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Wait, which one came first? Oh, it's tight. This one. 2009. Yeah, this was still Tenant Era. This one did come first. Yeah, you're right. Actually, by a couple of years. But that's so small. That, that Yeah, no, you're right. That but, is not a copy. No, no, it's not a copy at all. But still, that came to mind. It's like, oh, that's a really nice theme. Oh, I found another bit in my notes where I liked, oh, that's which it. was Kelly turns the sun green at one point, mm-hmm. and she says, 10, 9, 8, 7. Do you know what? I'm not going to have a countdown, because I'm just going to preview. I can see this anytime I and like. Because Drew hates countdowns. Yep. First of all, I didn't have to hear the rest of that wretched countdown. <laughs> and secondly, she flicks the button, you hear the sound effect. And nothing happens. And she goes, give it a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... (laughs) That's really good. Yeah. And that also leads to some tension in the next scene, because, of course, they flip from her to someone instantly, because this serial cannot linger on someone doing nothing for two seconds, because it needs to ramp up that tension so far and so so fast. And then you get that splice cut, and all throughout, you're like, so did it work? Did it actually work? 
and then it's revealed, and that's another good thing. So there's like three little good things there. Nice. Yeah, excellent. Okay, I'm just going to keep railroading through more good bits. Into the world, laugh, do we have some fun? He's dead. I was laughing at one thing, and then I was laughing for a completely different reason. Because <laughs> I didn't expect it. I like, like the surprise. Oh, and then there was the doctor asking Kelly, why did you shout yah? Please don't do it again. It's very off-putting. Oh, yeah. No, I agree with that. <laughs> Both with it being fun and it being off-putting. Yeah. I didn't think that this episode was particularly scintillating. I thought the scintillation factor, the memorable lines, the poetic phrasings, they were very sparse. Okay. I thought it was really, really solid rather than sparkling. <laughs> but I did think it was better than not. Okay. I'm struggling to think of the good things, but the fact is, it was overall just very well put together. And that's not easy to summarise glibly. You have to listen to the thing to appreciate it. Given how elaborate the plot is, and how many players there are in this story, it's quite a feat that it makes sense. Yeah. And And fits together so neatly. Exactly. It's exceptionally well done in that regard. Who wrote this? I'm finding out. I would say that some strong stuff, actually, in terms of writing, is at the beginning when Rob is introducing doubt into Lucy's relationship with the Doctor. I know she's got a crystal that is making her suggestible, but he's managing to say things that are both exactly what a cult that wants to induct you and exploit you would say, yeah, and at the same time, what a lot of people need to hear to leave abusive relationships and things like that. So it's doing double duty there really well. Were it not for the music, you could almost take him as being potentially a positive force in the upcoming story, rather than, obviously, a cult representative. I just looked up the writer. The writer's Eddie Robson. Okay. Writer slash producer. Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. (laughs) When he's not written Doctor Who stuff, he's written Blake Seven. Ooh. Which I love. He's also written Hollyoaks, which I have no experience of and intend to never have any experience of. But he's written a tremendous amount of Doctor Who audiobooks, including a number of Eighth Doctor adventures. He wrote Phobos, which I want to say I enjoyed, but that may be wholly misremembering it. I can't remember now exactly, but I remember the plot of it. It's like this snowboard camp with aliens and there's whatever. Okay, it doesn't matter. Next up, he wrote Human Resources. Aha! He wrote Grand Theft Cosmos. Uh, he's your best mate all of a sudden. Eight Truths, World Wide Web, and then two more. Now, two more means this is all in Eighth Doctor Adventure series. So two more means they're in the final season of Eighth Doctor Adventures. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember JD saying that the last season of Eighth Doctor Adventures is 5.0, 5.0, 5.0, 5.0. Ooh, that suddenly puts me in a bind. If he's written two of those, yeah, and he's written this, and he wrote Human Resources, which I'm a huge fan of, this is a good writer. Mm. No wonder he did such a good job of crafting this story, of, of weaving together this narrative. He's really talented. Yeah, and this was two hours, and okay, I said it was quite hard to sort of get through it all in one sitting, but that wasn't because it was dragging at any point. I don't think this dragged for more than a few seconds of perhaps a musical theme going on slightly longer than I'd expect. Sure. This was a novella condensed down to just be crammed into two hours, just barely. This guy was not wanting for material. Oh, absolutely not. All Uh, right. And there was another little bit where Lucy is in Spider Heaven, Uh and... Basically, everyone wants to vote her out. (laughs) I 
<laughs> I just thought that concept on its own. Where's she going to go? And, well, part of me expects, if I ever did make it to heaven, that, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. They're like, actually, we've had second thoughts. I mean, this is just British Empire all over again. <laughs> or curb your enthusiasm. Or any number of things. But I, I thought it was well done here, anyway. I've got a question that might round it off a little bit. Okay. What's going to happen to all the people in this faux heaven now? Is Kelly going to be their new queen? Are they going to just stay in this white nothingness, this void forever? Yes, they are. Because apparently it seems to be self-sustaining to the extent that the Doctor can't destroy the energy. He can't begin to dismantle it. The Time Lord technology and what has already been uploaded into it, whatever that combination is, is something that he has to respect and leave in stasis. So, yeah, they're going to just be left in a dark, uninhabited corner of the cosmos to be maybe wheeled out in the future. I don't know what Eddie Robson's got in mind, but yeah, essentially that's it for them. They're going to have to learn to get along. (laughs) Okay. Oh, and the final line was when Karen's talking about the headhunter dying, and she's like, oh, well, she's dead. But it's not like she was going to give me a great reference. (laughs) It's quite interesting, actually, to hear once again. I mean, we've had similar situations in New Who, at least, with, for example, Sarah Jane Smith showing up again in School Reunion. And they've been like, well, what happened to your life after you parted ways with the Doctor? You know, what was the life post-Time Lord like? And we get an insight into something akin to that with, the headhunter having left Karen on Earth, and Karen's she was homeless and she she was destitute and she couldn't get a job because there was this massive gap in a CV and she had no real skills that she could brag about and so on. Oh, do you think that might be true then? Because I thought that was true, and then when it turned out that she was in cahoots with the headhunter again, I decided that that was all a big lie. Oh, you know what? I didn't I didn't even catch on to that. You're probably right. In fact. But it could be partly true, but Maybe we don't it's know. hyperbole. Maybe she's just spinning a yarn to ingratiate herself with her former foe, yeah. Lucy Miller. Oh, you know what? That one, like, swoof, right over my head when I listen to this. Yeah, and she does immediately win Lucy's sympathy. So, yeah, I reckon that was pitched. Yeah. And no, well done. Well done. Okay. And I'll end with a bad line when the Queen's going, I am still here. I am still here. (laughs) All right, Theresa May. (laughs) Say something new. Anything. Ratings? Ratings. And now it is time to rate this. Did we laugh or hate this? Bing bong, bing bong, hey, la 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 la. Ratings. Okay, so I said much of this already, but I'll try to keep it brief. Far more than the cannibalists, this was a lesson in audiobook construction, how to balance action across the parts, doubling out mysteries and doses of peril at precisely timed intervals throughout the production, so that even if you knew broadly where things were going, there were enough moving parts to keep you off balance, tense and surprised. Sheridan Smith had a lot to do, came out of it fairly well. Overall, I'm not sure I would go back and listen again. Oh, really? Even though I think it was good overall and deserves a fairly good mark... And in fact, I think I may have gone up from my original mark. Because there is a lot of good stuff. I think maybe I came into this weary from having just finished it. I think I'm going to have to go with a 3.7. Yeah, that's around about where I would have gone as well. Though, admittedly, I hadn't picked a a number beforehand. I just looked up the cannibalist. You gave that 3.1. 
Yeah, this is better than that. Oh, this is definitely better than that, yeah. And Cannibalist was great fun, but still, this is way better. This is more serious. I don't want to echo everything that we've said, because I I feel that overall we've actually been very positive about this. And and if I were to give this a a proper mini-review now, it would be overwhelmingly positive. A few things that we didn't mention, though, that also helped to bump up the score a little bit. We didn't really talk about maybe the parallels with Scientologists or with other cults out there. Yeah. I think that was dealt with really well, and it was creepy in all the right places, and it was well-organized, like sinisterly organized in all the other right places. Mm. The whole test of like basically checking for thetans in Lucy <laughs> is, is fantastic. Yeah and, yeah. and then the speeding up the conveyor belts process of ferrying new recruits into this cult later on. Really, really well done. At times, I also felt, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase one of my notes here, at times I felt that this audiobook walked a very, very nice balance between revealing the actual truth of the story and confirming all of your erroneous suspicions about the story. I'm thinking in particular of the moments where the entirely made-up prophecy seems to be true. Right, and, and all of a sudden, you as the listener of this audiobook, you don't know if, oh, maybe it is true, but maybe there's some sci-fi explanation to that. Maybe this prophecy is the sci-fi element of this story, you know? And yeah, I, and then you're just glad it's not another Rings of a Carlton situation. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> we're coming up to that, by the way. Yes, I know. Rings of a Carlton. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would have loved to have seen the end of the world orgy that is alluded to in this, by the way. And there are lots of really, really fun lines. The, does that mean I'm dead? Uh, Oh, hang on. I'll be back in a jiffy. That whole scene had me laughing. Yeah. I'm going to give this a, oh, I give the last one a 2.8. Cannibalists 2.8. I'll give this a 3.8. Okay. I think I might listen to this one again at some point. Mm -hmm. Far in the future. There's just too much other big Finnish stuff to get on with. Well, quite. Okie dokie. What else should we get on with? Oh, that is a good question. Right. So next out of the gate, we have a new Who review, namely of... The Wedding of River Song. That's right. Sounds pleasant. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, I'm sure that's just a feel-good adventure. (laughs) After that, we've got a bonus episode. We're going to be dealing with the third Doctor. It'll be the third Doctor, the John Pertwee retrospective, as we've now already clarified. We've just reviewed Planet of the Spiders, in which he transitions into the fourth Doctor, which brings us to the next classic episode thereafter, namely... Robots! That's right! Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. Tom Baker's first episode. You were going to get 50 listener minis for that. (laughs) We may already have. (laughs) We'll see. I I can't remember. I'm sure we have something. Do you feel inclined to maybe review more audiobooks in the future? Well, I mean, if what JD said and they're all fives in series four, then yes, why not? Wonderful. In that case, you'll be glad to hear that the next one is called Death in Blackpool. Hmm. Close to paradise. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) Not quite. We'll find out the minuscule differences in one to eight months. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter. Drew, you are? At Drew Backway. Excellent branding. And I am at Ponkin. Slightly less excellent branding as I am currently rebranding myself. But yeah, P-O-N-K-E-N. Swedes know how to spell that. Thank you so much for listening, ladies and gents. You've been a lovely audience. Until the next time, rock on and ciao-ciao. Bye-bye. 
Kablamo! Did you enjoy the show? Then please do what the cosmos compels you to and spread the gospel of who back when. Tell your friends. But I've got no friends. No problemo. Tell some strangers. Hey! Like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash who back when. All in one word. Are you into Twitter? Awesome. High five us online and we'll high five you right back. You guessed it. We're at who back when. All in one word. Check us out on Instagram for behind the scenes photos and other Whovian goodness. Watch our videos or even listen to our podcast on YouTube. That's whobackwhen.com slash YouTube. Vote us up on Reddit. Listen to us on Stitcher and head on over to our website whobackwhen.com where you can submit a review of your own. Browse the article archives and peruse our visual index of aliens, monsters, and more, which increases in Kablamos with every episode. And lastly, give us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps our show get noticed and earns you lots of karma points. That's it. Rock on and be rad and excellent to each other. Catch your earballs in our next Who review or bonus episode. Until then, ciao. Who back when? Oh, is this post-credit land? I think it is. It is. This strange white void. Oh, I can't see anything. That's. Are we meant to spend eternity in here? Oh, possibly. Oh. I mean, what else do you do after the credits are rolled? Oh, I don't know. Well, if this is a post-credit sequence, this still does count as the same episode, does it not? Yes, it does. Why do you bring that up? Well, I'm very glad that you ask, because a certain someone reminded me of this fact. <laughs> Thank you very much, Drew. Ladies and gents of podcast land, this A020 has been Drew Back When's 100th episode of Who Back When. Including bonuses. <laughs> that counts. That still counts. Yeah. 100 episodes, Drew. Thanks for sticking around, Podcast Land. Oh. Specifically after the credits to hear this <laughs> as the bonus content. <laughs> On behalf of Podcast Land and, and of myself, I don't, I don't presume to be in a position to talk for Podcast Land, but still I'm going to say thank you, Drew. <laughs> For 100 really, really good episodes. Oh, thanks, man. Had a lot of fun. Chin, chin, Mo. Chin, chin. Bing bong.